Welcome to Cascades Bible Church. Well, this morning, I invite you to turn with me to 1 Corinthians chapter 15. 1 Corinthians chapter 15, and we are going to look at the next section, verses 12 to 19 this Sunday. That's our plan, is to finish up to end of verse 19. And we introduced our study of, of this chapter last Lord's Day by uh, pointing out that God's people would do well to exercise a Bobby Fisher-like mindset when it comes to the message of the gospel, that, um, that we would do well to linger long over the potential spiritual consequences, two, three, four, five uh, moves, if you will, down the line, if uh, we're ever tempted to tamper with or to abridge the good news. And uh, of course, Bobby Fisher was probably one of the one of the greatest chess players who ever lived. He always considered, we said, the fallout of every potential move on the board before making his move, uh, and thus was able to keep himself a step ahead of the adversary. And our adversary, the devil, is, is constantly maneuvering as well. The scripture says he roams around like a roaring lion seeking someone to devour. And um, so as unbelievers mock the gospel, as they belittle the gospel or... Um, dismiss the Savior, we will be tempted, if you haven't already, you will be tempted to round off the hard edges of God's holiness as you speak about Christ to unbelievers. To, to, uh, you'll be tempted to compromise the, the depth of man's sinfulness as you explain the, the corruption of our hearts. You will be potentially tempted to um, uh, compromise on the exclusivity of Christ's message and that he and he alone is the way of salvation when we speak about Christ with others. And so um, that temptation is always going to be there, and we can't take that bait. We have to avoid that trap or fall victim to, the, to Satan's deceptive schemes in those ways. We have to get the gospel right, we said last Sunday, and we have to get the whole gospel right. And that includes the resurrection, which is an essential part of the, of the gospel. Christ's resurrection, that's very much in, you know, important and essential to the gospel, but even our resurrection, the future resurrection of the righteous and the wicked. You know, the Apostles' Creed affirms that we believe in the resurrection of the body, and that is a concise and accurate summary of biblical truth that we affirm. But in Corinth, we said last week, as we set the stage, there was confusion about that. There was not consensus around that reality, that the the, the, the resurrection was essential to the gospel. There was not a universal embrace of that truth. There was a cohort of people in the Corinthian church who said, uh, or had either doubted or come to deny the literal bodily resurrection of all men, and especially of believers, in the future. Um, and so they were like an inexperienced chess player. They, they failed to consider the logical and the spiritual consequences that that position entails. And that, uh, so in casting doubt over the resurrection, they just didn't think two, three, four, five moves down the line as to what that meant for the integrity of the gospel message itself and the very credibility and, and viability of our Christian confession. And so as the Apostle Paul is drawing his thoughts to a close here, he is reiterating these realities. He's reasoning with us about those things. He is reminding us of the, uh, that the integrity of the gospel and our Christian faith hinges on the truthfulness of the resurrection. In all. 
And so now, last week, the grace of God was kind of front and center. We pointed that out in verses 1 to 11. As Paul reminded us, basically what he's doing is, is saying, this is the common ground we all inhabit. This is the truths we, these are the truths we all affirm. And uh, we saw God's grace and his undeserved favor in terms of the truth of the gospel itself, which he summarized for us in verses 3 and 4. We saw his grace in the testimony of the eyewitnesses and just the, the nature of the, who those people were and, and how God's grace came to them, those who were weak, those who were frail, uh, those who had rebelled against God, and yet he revealed himself in his resurrection power. And we saw, of course, the grace of God, as Paul highlights, in his own life as Saul of Tarsus becomes uh, Paul the Apostle. And he, we said last week, capitalized on our lowliness and our helplessness and uses that as kind of a foil to exalt the grace of God towards sinners. And that was the theme of of those opening 11 verses. As we come then this morning to verses 12 to 19, having laid out this common ground of our faith, Paul then gives the Corinthians, and he gives us, I mean, he's giving it to us as well, five inescapable consequences that flow out from Uh, denying the resurrection of the dead. So if you deny the resurrection of the dead, these are the five inescapable consequences that flow out of that position, such as they would hold it. So Paul's essentially saying, as we come to verse 12 this morning, if these things, uh, if the resurrection is not true, these things that, uh, all these things that I've just reiterated that we all seem to profess and confess, um, then this is what necessarily must follow. And it's a very logical, very precise argument. And he breaks it down, into, like I said, into five necessary, inescapable consequences. And that's what we want to look at this morning. The first, the first inescapable consequence that flows out from their position, which is not necessarily Paul's position, but it's their position that there is no resurrection. If there is no resurrection of the dead, First, we see that our preaching of Christ is in vain. We see that in verses 12 to 14. Our preaching of Christ is in vain. Paul understood, and we made this clear last week, that the heart and soul of the gospel is the resurrection of Jesus Christ. Without that, there is no good news. There's nothing good about the news if Christ is not raised. So for Paul... As it should be for us, the integrity of the gospel is crucial if, if, if its power is to be realized in a fallen world, if we're going to see that um, worked out. And, of course, they were very much uh, confused about many things spiritually, but uh, the Gentile nations that they came out of, you know, they had no... They had no concept of God. They had no understanding. It's not like the Jews who, who, who had a knowledge of God... Um, they were not worshipers of the true God. They were just there. They had no biblical skeleton to even loosely frame their thinking as he writes to them. And, uh, and so their world and life view was very much dictated by the spirit of the day, which was polytheistic. It was beholden to things like Epicurean philosophy and mysticism, among other things. They were, those are all things that were deeply entrenched in their their social imaginary, if you will, that what they kind of think of those things. And in our day, we are very much, uh, our culture is very much beholden to that as well. There are countless philosophies that influence the mind and the heart of unbelievers now. Um, Evolutionary theory, materialism, rationalism, 
Uh, we've talked about expressive individualism and some of those things that surround that. Every kind of ism you can think of is very much, you know, working itself over on our hearts. You can think of them as pervading society and chipping away at the foundation of biblical truth. They all do that in some way, shape, or form. And so this idea of life after death is seen today to be scientifically untenable or um, ignorant and backwards. Some people just think it's downright like fanciful, that it's part of our imagination. And, and all of that threatens to undermine our belief and integrity in the gospel that we proclaim. And so Paul, then writing to the Corinthians, then is forced to address this problem, this issue among them that there are individuals professing to be followers of Christ and yet at the same time denying the resurrection, the resurrection of the dead. Notice what he says in verse 12. He says, Now, if Christ is preached that he has been raised from the dead, how do some among you say there is no resurrection of the dead? As we saw last Sunday in verses 1 to 11, the gospel of grace is clear. Christ died for our sins according to the scriptures, and he was buried, and he was raised on the third day. Every part of that is essential. And then he went on to explain last Sunday, as we looked at verses 5 to 7, that Christ appeared to, uh, to many witnesses, and that is corroborated. The truthfulness of that claim is corroborated by Peter and the disciples. It was corroborated by the 500 who saw him at all at one time, to James, his half-brother, and basically the one who rejected him and his earthly ministry, and, and now you know the, all the other apostles with a lowercase a that were sent out. Like They all saw the risen Savior. The truthfulness of that claim is undeniable. And then Paul says, he appeared to me, and explains, of course, referring to his experience on the Damascus Road. So as Paul begins here in verses 12 to 19, he makes a strong contrast between the overwhelming evidence of the truthfulness of the resurrection and, uh, and Christ's bodily resurrection, and, the, and between that and what they were holding to and they were, as they were casting doubt on that truth. It's, it's the content of the message itself that Paul is taking issue with, and of course it has implications for their heart and lives. That's his concern here. The gospel is the power of God unto salvation to everyone who believes. This truth has eternal impact. It, it matters. It matters. Whether or not you believe and treasure the gospel will determine where you will spend eternity. It matters. You and I are all, we said, helpless sinners. We cannot do enough, be enough, save ourselves by anything that we would do. We are under God's judgment. But as Ephesians 2 says, but God, but God, being rich in mercy and grace, sent his only begotten son, Jesus Christ, into the world, and he lived that royal life that we could never live. He died the shameful, atoning death we could never endure. And he did that and rose from the grave, literally, physically proving that he had made a sacrifice, a sufficient atonement for sin. That is the gospel message which Paul and countless others have preached down through the ages, and it cannot be amended. It cannot be abridged. It cannot be abandoned if we were to have any integrity, and yet there were those in Corinth 
who professed faith in Christ and were doing just that. And so Paul says with astonishment at the end of verse 12, how do some among you say there is no resurrection of the dead? His mind is it's blown. How can you say that? To Paul, a statement like that is nonsense. How can you say such a thing and still call yourself a follower of Christ? Don't you know what that entails? Don't you know what the consequences of that will be? Reminds me, when our kids were little, three, four, five, and we'd play Connect Four, you know, Connect Four, you know, you're dropping the pieces in, and they're dropping their pieces in, and the game, you know, the game takes 30 seconds, 45 seconds. Um, they're all excited. You're dropping their pieces. You're dropping your pieces. They're dropping their pieces, and it's painfully obvious to you as the parent that you're about to win, right? And they're all like, oh, oh, you know, and they're going, 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 and then all of a sudden, it's like, connect four, and like, what? And, and Paul is like the parent here, the Corinthians who denied the resurrection were like the four-year-olds who they were completely unaware of what the end game was. They did not see as they were dropping these chips where they were, that they were about to lose outright, that this made no sense. Paul sees very transparently how their seemingly small deviation and alteration of the gospel would lead to devastating consequences. You're going to lose it was his responsibility then to shepherd those under his care away from their dangerous false teaching. And in the same way, it is our responsibility to shepherd those whom we care for and to help them see the danger of their errors, particularly as it relates to the resurrection, but anything that is false and wrong. But we're to do that, of course, with patience, right? The Lord's bondservant must not be quarrelsome, but patient with all, able to teach, Right? And we need to be able to do that graciously. For many, they simply don't see what the end game is. They don't know they're about to lose. And so we need to be patient with them. And that's exactly what Paul does in verses 13 to 14. He's pointing out the inescapable consequences that flow out from denying the resurrection. He assumes, for the sake of argument, that their position is true. He assumes that their argument is true, and then he appeals to human reason and logic to expose the first of five inescapable consequences that result from denying the resurrection of the dead. Look at verse 13. He says, but, or, you know, okay, assuming there is no resurrection of the dead, that's how you could translate verse 13, then he says, not even Christ has been raised, okay? If the universal principle has no validity... By deduction, a particular instance uh, has no validity either. If there's no such thing as resurrection from the dead, and that's what you're saying, then there's no way Christ has been resurrected from the dead, correct? To which they would have to affirm, probably a little bit sheepishly at this point, yeah, okay. And so after establishing their premise, then he exposes the logical consequence that follows from denying the resurrection, the first of it anyway. In the beginning of verse 14, he says, okay, if there's no resurrection of the dead, then not even Christ has been raised. In verse 14, and if Christ has not been raised, then our preaching is in vain. Our preaching is in vain. The heart and soul of our message is the resurrection. Paul says, if Christ is not raised, our message is in vain. It is without substance. It has no value. 
If you take the resurrection out of the equation, you are left chasing nothing. The world is filled with billions upon billions of dead people. Millions and billions of dead people. If the resurrection isn't true, Jesus is just one more dead person amongst billions of others. He just happens to be more well-known. I ran across a satirical article a while back, and the headline says, World Death Rate Holds Steady at 100%. And the article, you know, it's meant to be like a, like a press briefing, but it says, World Health Organization officials expressed disappointment Monday at the group's finding that despite the enormous efforts of doctors, rescue workers, and other medical professionals worldwide, that the global death rate remains constant at 100%. WHO Director General was quoted as saying, I really was hoping all these new treatments and rescue helicopters and aerobics TV shows and what have you, that we might at least make a dent in it this year, end quote. You know, obviously this is satirical, but death is ubiquitous. We all are, if Christ does not return, we will all die. The historical death rate has always been 100%. It's nothing unique. What makes Christ unique and the gospel message transcendent is that Christ has conquered death through the resurrection. The apostles are all dead. Muhammad is dead, Joseph Smith is dead, Buddha is dead, but Christ is risen. He lives. The resurrection is what gives the gospel substance and what gives it power. And so we must affirm it and we must believe it this morning and every day if we are to walk with Christ. So the first inescapable consequence, if, if the resurrection of the dead is is not true, if Christ has not been raised, then our preaching is in vain. But that's not the only consequence. There's a second one that he brings out at the end of verse 14. You know, if we deny the resurrection of Christ, not only is our preaching of no substance, gutted of all value, but secondly, the believer's faith is useless as well. And that's the second point in our outline. Our faith is, is useless as well. And that's what he says. It's kind of an addendum, but it's, a, it's really a separate point. If Christ hasn't been raised, our preaching is in vain, and so is our faith. Or um, your faith also is in vain. Paul says if you deny the resurrection, the message of the gospel has no substance. You're preaching about a dead man, like every other dead man. And if you believe that particular gospel, your faith in a dead man, is you know what benefit is that? How does that help you? Now, Hebrews chapter 11 and verse 1 says that faith is the assurance, the substance of things hoped for, the conviction of things not seen. What assurance do we have if there's no hope of a future resurrection? What conviction can you and I have if Jesus died and remained dead like every other human being who has gone before him and followed after him? So the gospel, the, the faith that we hold itself is not what saves us. The faith is not what saves us. It's the power or the work of the object of our faith that saves us. The faith is the means to that end. I can have faith that the chair at my kitchen table will hold me up when I sit in it, but it's not ultimately my faith that's physically holding me up. It's the chair <laughs> that is holding me up. And so it is with Christ's resurrection. I can have faith in Christ and, and a hope 
and the hope of the future resurrection, but it's ultimately not the faith that will effect my resurrection in and of itself. It is God who is the one who will save me. It is God who will raise me up in that last day if my faith in him is real. So my question to you this morning is, is what are you putting your faith in? What are you putting your trust in? For some of you, it may be in your own efforts, your own works, your own good deeds. For some among us, it might be your religious pedigree, your family, or something like that. We're, we're Christians. We always go to church. We, this is who we are. Or maybe you're resting in the fact that, that there's a sort of sentimental attachment to the Christian faith that we, we cling to. You know, It just reminds us of the good old days. Perhaps you trust in some eclectic mix of your own ideas, kind of a bespoke spirituality of a little bit of this and a little bit of that, kind of mixed together. Whatever it is you trust in, if your trust is in anything else besides the perfect life, the sacrificial death, and the victorious resurrection, literally bodily, of Jesus Christ for your salvation, if your trust is in anything else, you've put your faith, Paul says, in an illusion. It's an illusion. To deny Christ's resurrection is to put your faith in an illusion. He says your so-called faith is a ruse. Our faith has power because our faith is in the one who has already been raised from the dead, Jesus Christ. God the Father, by the Spirit's power, raised the Son from the dead, and God the Father, by the Spirit's power, will raise us from the dead. We're going to see that in in these latter verses of chapter 15. So faith in the resurrection message is what unites us to Christ's resurrection life. It is the means by which we do that, and we must affirm it, and we must believe it this morning. The consequences in these verses start to pile up as we get into verses 15 and 16. Not only is the proclamation of Christ in vain if there's no resurrection and the believer's faith, our faith is, in, is useless, but thirdly, here's a third in, inescapable consequence. If the resurrection is not true, followers of Christ are proven to be liars. Followers of Christ are proven to be liars. Verse 15, he says, Moreover, we're even found to be false witnesses of God. Because we testified against God that he raised Christ, whom he did not raise, if in fact the dead are not raised. For if the dead are not raised, not even Christ has been raised. Of course, we know the Ten Commandments. The Ninth Commandment is one that um, we don't always think about that much. But is you shall not bear false witness. That's innate in the human heart. We understand that just naturally. We speak truth. Um, the consequences of lying during court testimony in, in the Jewish culture and Jewish society were steep. The consequences of that were steep and swift. To be a false witness, to perjure yourself in, in official proceedings, opened you up to a whole host of punishments up to and including death. For Paul, if Jesus wasn't truly raised, and that was the message he had, he... And everyone else who professed that message, proclaimed that message, were found to be false witnesses about what God had actually done, or I guess not done, as the case may be. If Christ is still in the grave, 
he was, Paul was, night and day traveling around from city to city, town to town, all throughout the Roman world, telling people who would listen that God raised Jesus from the dead when in fact God had done no such thing. So one of the inescapable consequences of denying the resurrection is the credibility gap that it opens up for us as believers. When someone tells you something that you know is untrue, like the world is flat or that the sun revolves around the earth, or that blue cheese isn't really good on everything. It causes you to step back and say, if they're wrong about that, what else could they be wrong about? All who would proclaim the message of resurrection would call into, be called into question for their integrity because they were unanimously, unanimously testifying that God raised Jesus perpetuating essentially what is a lie and building an army of followers on the sinking sand of false testimony. So if they were found to be liars about the resurrection, the the question would start to swirl around in their minds. Well, what else might they be lying about? But as we saw last Sunday, Christ's bodily resurrection was corroborated by hundreds, if not thousands, of eyewitnesses at different times and different places throughout those 40 days that he remained on the earth before his ascension. So Paul knew, and of course Paul understood what he himself had seen on the Damascus Road. So so the testimony of the resurrection really is as true as I stand before you this morning. And you and I must affirm it and believe it, and proclaim it. There's a fourth inescapable consequence here in the text, and in my opinion, I think it's the most alarming consequence of denying or doubting the resurrection of the body, and it, and it logically entails that if Christ was not raised, and there is no resurrection of the dead, fourthly, there is no forgiveness of sin. There is no forgiveness of sin. Look at verses 16 and 7, actually 16 to 18. Paul says, For if the dead are not raised, not even Christ has been raised. And if Christ has not been raised, your faith is worthless, you are still in your sins. And then those also who have fallen asleep in Christ have perished. So Paul understands that saving faith has a real benefit. It brings with it the assurance of forgiveness. It brings with it the hope of pardon and the reality of pardon. If that benefit is nullified, the believer's faith has become utterly worthless. You remember Paul back in verse 3, we saw this uh, in this beginning of the gospel summary. He says, Christ died for our sins according to the scriptures. So Christ died for a very specific purpose. His death had a, had a very specific goal in mind. He died to take away our sin. The scriptures make that purpose clear all over the New Testament. First Peter, just one example, First Peter 3, verse 18, Christ also died for sins once for all, the just for the unjust, so that he might bring us to God, having been put to death in the flesh, but made alive in the Spirit. You know, he... He died for our sins, the just for the unjust. 
It's of no small consequence that Jesus forgave our sin because our sin has an immense eternal consequence. The Bible makes clear that God is holy. He's unimpeachably holy, and his justice is unyielding. It's because who he is. He is just and righteous. Habakkuk chapter 1, verse 13 says of, of God, your eyes are too pure to approve evil, and you cannot look on wickedness with favor. God has nothing to do with sin, nothing to do with Rebellion. The Lord is completely pure and without defect, and thus he must judge sin righteously. How then can he be just and righteous and holy and at the same time justify the ungodly? How can he do that? That's the question that Paul asks in Romans 3. How can he be just and the justifier of him who has faith in Christ? And the answer is Christ's death on the cross satisfies the justice of God. And his resurrection proved that that satisfaction, that atonement was complete and acceptable to God. So it was not for his own sin that he died, but for our sin that he died. God raised him up because he himself had no sin. He who had no sin became a sacrifice of sin for us. So as Romans 4 verse 25 says, Jesus was delivered over because of our transgressions. But here's the thing, he was raised, and this is the point Romans 4 verse 25 is saying, literally for the benefit of our justification. So the resurrection is connected to our justification. Our uh, justification is just another way of saying to righteousify. Because we don't have a righteousify, that's not a word. Because we think justification, we think kind of like defending yourself or explaining yourself. But justification has the idea of being made just, righteous. We were, his resurrection was for the benefit of our justification. If Christ was not raised, as some of the Corinthians were claiming, verse 18 says, the ones who have fallen asleep in Christ which is, again, just a euphemism for those who have died, he says they've perished. They've perished. If Christ is not raised, all those who have died clinging to faith in Christ have perished in hell. That's the, that's the logical entailment. Their sin has not been covered. They've entered a state of eternal destruction separate from God. They share the same destiny as Satan and all his fallen angels. There's no hope. So we see here, as Paul works through this, the consequences of holding this false doctrine aren't simply experienced temporally in this life. They are experienced and reverberate into the life to come. The consequences of denying the resurrection just pile up one after another after another. And they reach from the temporal consequences of preaching an empty message all the way to the eternal consequences of judgment in hell. So the resurrection is the only true hope that anyone in the world has for the forgiveness of sins. There is no salvation in anyone else. And so we must affirm that reality and believe it and proclaim it this morning. Fifth, and finally, if there is no resurrection from the grave... Our preaching is in vain, 
Our faith is useless. We are false witnesses. We're found to be liars. And we are still in our sins. But there's a fifth inescapable consequence, and that comes to us in verse 19. Christians are the most pitiable people. Christians are the most pitiable people. When I was growing up, I was awkwardly tall, dressed nerdishly. Thank you, Mom. I was socially unaware. My front teeth stuck out. I was horribly uncoordinated. I watched Star Trek The Next Generation (laughs) religiously. I had a big red geriatric bike, and I even used to play football with a helmet in the front yard by myself. (laughs) If there was another kid my age who deserved to be pitied more than I did, I am not aware of him. (laughs) And yet as pitiable as I was during those late elementary school and, if we're honest, early middle school years, it didn't compare to the pity that ought to be poured out on the person who denies the resurrection of Christ. Look at verse 19. He says, If we have hoped in Christ in this life only, we are of all men most to be pitied. In other words, if in this life the only thing that Christians have is a hope of eternity with Christ, but that hope will never be realized because there's no resurrection, like they claim, we, they, are the most pitiable people on the planet. So to deny the resurrection logically has immense consequences. And the only logical conclusion that one can draw from such a litany of devastating consequences is that Christians are to be pitied. We're not to be mocked. We're not to be, um, we're not to be uh, dismissed. We're to be pitied because we've been deceived and have forfeited so much. Not only are we denying ourselves the passing pleasures of sin in this life, but we're foolishly and continuously looking forward to a life that doesn't really exist. And if that were true, if that were true, Paul's conclusion, this hypothetical conclusion of verse 19, would be legitimate. But Paul knew, and we know, that Christ was raised... And therefore, the unbelieving world, not us, are in the most pitiable position. They're the most pity, the unbelieving world is are among the most pitiable people because all have the testimony of the truth in creation and their conscience, screaming at them of the power of God, his eternal attributes. Those things are screaming at them, and many, many more have heard the message of the resurrection. They have sat in churches, and they've they've heard neighbors and family members plead with them about Christ. They have had that message handed down to them through the centuries. They hear it sung in Christmas hymns as they walk through the stores. And yet they remain hardened in their trespasses and sins. So the one who rejects that reality that Christ came into the world to save sinners, they are among the most to be pitied. So we should not mock the ones who reject the resurrection, nor should we exalt ourselves over them. We must be brokenhearted over their rejection. We must weep for their souls 
and pray and plead. We should have the compassion of Christ himself who wept at the devastating consequences of sin as he stood at the grave of his friend Lazarus. It says Jesus wept. Horatius Bonner writes in words to winners of souls, he says, quote, I know not what others think, but for my own part, I am ashamed of my stupidity and wonder at myself that I deal not with my own and other souls as one that looks for the great day of the Lord. And that I can have room for almost any other thoughts and words and that such astonishing matters as the gospel, he says, do not wholly absorb my mind. I marvel how I can preach of them slightly and coldly and how I can let men alone in their sins and that I do not go to them and beseech them for the Lord's sake to repent however they may take it and whatever pain and trouble it should cost me, end quote. It's this kind of urgency, this kind of gravity with which we should look out at the unbelieving world and affirm and proclaim the resurrection of Christ. They are to be pitied. The world is to be pitied because every one of the logical consequences that we just walked through, all the logical consequences that would fall on the believer if the resurrection were not true, those things turn around and fall on unbelievers because it is true. Because the resurrection of Christ is true, our preaching is valid. It is not in vain. Because the resurrection of Christ is true, our faith is essential and life-giving, not useless. Because the resurrection of Christ is true, we are God's ambassadors, testifying truthfully to the glorious good news. We are not liars nor bearing false witness. And because the resurrection of Christ is true, we have forgiveness of sins And unbelievers, if they persist in their unbelief, will perish eternally. So the resurrection reveals the most pitiable condition. The most pitiable condition is unbelief. And the only remedy is faith in our Lord Jesus Christ. So we must affirm it and believe it and proclaim it. We have by the grace of God, been given this capacity through the word of God and the spirit of God to think and reason and evaluate. And God has given us this word so that we can be like Bobby Fisher. We can see two, three, eight moves ahead as we think about the implications of various doctrines. We see then the inescapable consequences of unbelief, the inescapable consequences of undermining the gospel message. We see that the resurrection of Christ, counterintuitive as it may seem, we cannot abandon that for a more culturally sensitive or culturally, I guess, acceptable message. The resurrection is a key component to the gospel and needs to be proclaimed courageously, clearly, and explained so that we can be faithful ambassadors. We can relay the message truthfully and completely. To deny the resurrection is to invalidate our preaching, to undermine our faith, to discredit our testimony, to abandon us to our sin, and ultimately to make us the most pitiable people on earth having come so close to the truth, but not truly understanding. 
So may God continue to grant us that grace to affirm and proclaim that Christ has been raised from the dead. As we say every Easter, he is risen. He is risen indeed. Let's pray. Father, thank you for your goodness to us. We thank you that we have been rescued from the wrath to come. And I pray that every heart here this morning could say that that is true of them, that they have truly believed and are resting in the Lord Jesus Christ and have received the forgiveness of sins that comes only through him. Lord, if there's any, any doubt in any heart, if there's any rebellion in any heart, may you break down those walls, those stumbling blocks, remove them. May your spirit bring conviction. May they yield their heart to you from this day forward and live with that eternal hope. So instead of being the most pitiable people in the world, they can be the most uh, hopeful people, the most courageous people, the most bold and peaceful people that we can be by your work in every heart. Lord, we thank you for the privilege of being able to know you and one day to see you face to face in your resurrection glory. Until that day, Lord, keep us walking with you that we might receive the crown of righteousness. We ask this in Jesus' name. Amen. Thank you for listening. We hope you've been encouraged by today's message. For more information or more messages like this, visit us at cascadesbiblechurch.com or subscribe via your favorite podcast app.